Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Uh, I want to welcome you, whether you call the Oaks home or you are a first-time guest. Uh, I want to welcome you as we continue our study through the book of Titus. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find the book of Titus. Now, this is technically our third week, but this is the first week that we're actually going to start rolling through this book verse by verse. Uh, if you have been here the past couple weeks, then you know that uh, first we looked at just the life and conversion of Paul, the apostle, who is the author of this letter. Uh, then next we looked at uh, just kind of the envelope, as we called it. Uh, so who's the author, who is the audience, and what is the application of this letter? And this morning, we're actually going to get into the first four verses, which we will see are just packed with truth about who God is and what He calls us uh, to be as His people. So um, before we do that, uh, as you're finding the book of Titus, I just want to you know, say again, last Sunday was so much fun. Uh, it was great to have Dr. Whitney here. It was great to have Sunday night equip in the new building. I think one of the things that I loved the most about, about Sunday night equip last Sunday uh, was that one of the first events that we had in the new chairs in the new building uh, was, was an hour and a half or so where much of it was learning about prayer, uh, where each person sitting in those chairs had the time to just pray through a psalm. And as we consider what it looks like to have a permanent space, I'm reminded of uh, just what Jesus said, that, that um, his, the Father's house would be a house of prayer, that we would be a people of prayer. Uh, so I was grateful to be able to share that memory with uh, so many of you. I know many of you couldn't make it, but um, it was just awesome to be able to have that time in the new building. And uh, I know that all of us probably are excited that we have been given this uh, permanent facility that the Lord has enabled us to be able to purchase it. And some of you might, might not know kind of the backstory of just kind of our journey in pursuit of a permanent facility to kind of plant roots in the city. So I thought it would be neat to revisit that for a moment. Uh, many of you know that through COVID, we were no longer meeting at John P. Parker Elementary. So we were meeting at a sister church at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And we were really praying that the Lord would open an opportunity for us to be able to purchase a building. We found one that we were like really hopeful about. And uh, we did something called the Roots Initiative. And so uh, we began this plan saying, hey, this is what we believe we need to be able to make a down payment on this building. By God's grace, uh, our church family raised over $200,000 during the, the height of COVID. And we made an offer on this building. We were like, all right, like, here we go. We like did this big thing. And then we like didn't even get to make a counter offer because there were like three offers higher than ours. And then it just went to, to someone else. And so we're like, man, like what, what is going on? Uh, but, it's, but it's cool now to look back and just to see God's faithfulness to our church, uh, that even in providing then, he set us up to be able to be ready for uh, a permanent facility whenever that opportunity arose again. And so we did that. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think about uh, the fact that we were just able to purchase a building by God's grace without having a, a giving campaign in three years. Uh, and the Lord has been so faithful to provide. And, and now I'm, I'm thinking, okay, as we move into this next chapter of the life of our church, uh, what is your unique role in it? 
I mean, I, th- I think about just the past, you know, six years, and each one of you who have become a part of this church family along the way, uh, whether it was at 20th Century Theater six years ago, or you jumped in whenever we were at John P. Parker Elementary, or over at CTK Eastern Hills, or maybe you came whenever we got here, or maybe you've only been here for a few weeks. The exciting thing is every time God has kind of moved us into a new chapter of the life of our church, God has done something unique. And so one of the reasons that I'm so excited about the Titus series is because it's an invitation in a way for you to figure out the unique way that God has called you to be a part of this church family and to serve in this church family, to discover and use your gifts in this church family. And so as we go through this series, you'll notice that I'm preaching it in a way that is kind of unique. Uh, I'm not just kind of giving you the what and the how about what is, what is behind this text and uh, what God is teaching us about being a church family. I'm supplying the why behind a lot of what we do and how we do it. Because I believe that God has you here at the Oaks to almost be a, a part of this, this team of people now. I mean, I'm reminded of six years ago whenever it was Abby and I moving up. But now as we almost, to use a, to use a, a term that we've uh, not really used before, as we replant our church in Silverton, six years later, as we look around the room and think, okay, like we're doing this together. And, and God's going to give us new opportunities. Uh, there are gonna be new ministries that are birthed out of being able to have a permanent presence in a community. We're gonna have new neighbors. Uh, there are gonna be so many different ways as we move into this building that we discover God has more in store for us than we could possibly even imagine right now. And so that's, I mean, in God's sovereign timing, I had Titus on the calendar before I even knew that we would be looking at moving into a church building. But as I've continued to read these chapters over and over again, my excitement has grown as I've watched the Lord truly build, build the trellis un- underneath kind of this, uh, the life of the oaks and the vine that is growing uh, through your faithfulness and through God's grace in and through this church family. So uh, that makes me more excited about this series than even I already was, uh, but felt like maybe it's helpful for you to know that as I'm studying uh, through this passage, I'm, I'm not just thinking, okay, uh, what, is, what is Titus saying, but how is this uh, going to be integral to the life of our church as we think not only through this series, but as we think through the next decade of the life of our church and how God could be using you to be a part of it in some form or fashion. Uh, So with that being said, we're gonna start with the basics this morning. And, And the main point of this sermon is this, that the fruit of the Christian life bears evidence to the root of Christ in your life. Now this is a big theme of Titus, the relationship between belief and behavior, how the fruit of the Christian life bears evidence to the root of Christ in your life. That if you truly have a relationship with Christ, if you've been redeemed by His grace, if you're walking by faith, if you've been united with Christ, then that's going to be evident through the decisions that you make, through the attitude that you have in relationship to one another. Something as simple as the way that you schedule your day will bear evidence, evidence to the fact that Christ is primary in your life. I thought about this a couple weeks ago, whenever Abby and I were in North Carolina 
visiting her sister. Just like Abby, she loves gardening, and so uh, she, her, she and her husband, they just purchased a new house, and the, she was showing us around, and uh, she's really proud of her plants. And so before we even went inside to look at the new house, uh, we spent a lot of time on the porch looking at the potted plants that she had, and then uh, she also had several pots that just appeared to be soil, but then a couple sprouts kind of poking through where she had planted seeds that were now starting to actually uh, show the fruit of a plant, flowers, uh, coming through. And then we went over to the side yard, and uh, you could see where she had just dumped all of her leftover soil that she had that was in the bag, and then she threw out all of the rest of her seeds. And she said, I don't really know what's going to happen here. I, you know, there was kind of some new growth that was poking through the dirt. And she said, some of these are probably weeds, and some of these are going to be flowers. I guess we'll know in a month or so. And as I thought about that, it reminded me of the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 7, where he said, that you will know a tree by its fruit, that a, a, a godly person will bear good fruit, just like a good tree will bear good fruit. And someone who uh, does not know the Lord, will, you will be able to look at their life, and it will bear evidence to that, that the, they ultimately do not have a relationship with God. They're not rooted in Him but rooted in something else that is ultimately disconnected from Christ, that you would be able to bear evidence to the root of Christ in somebody's life by looking at the fruit of their life. And so today we're going to look at seven qualities or characteristics of someone who is rooted in Christ. And, and as we do that, I hope that this is a comfort for many of you, that as we're walking through these, you can say, yeah, like, you know, even if I don't share the gospel as much as I want to, I have a desire for that. I'm burdened by that. I long for that. That would be a comfort as you think about receiving God's grace and peace. All of these different aspects that we will look at of the Christian life, that there would be a great comfort for you. For each one of us, I also hope that it's an invitation to examination. And we can say, okay, do I bear this fruit in my life? Do I actually see evidence of this in me? And I think for each one of us, it will, it will renew a sense of complete dependence upon the Lord, because just as Josh just read in John 15, apart from Christ, apart from abiding in the vine, we cannot bear any fruit. And so for, for each of us, I pray that's a renewed dependence upon Christ, because yes, we say, Lord, use me in any way that you see fit, but keep me near you as you do it. Now, with all that being said, we're going to look at the first four verses of Titus, quick overview of the book of Titus, because here's what I would desire for, for each of you, that you're reading the entirety of this letter throughout the week a couple times. Uh, chapter one, you'll see is all, all about uh, godly teaching and the false doctrines that should be avoided. Uh, chapter two is all about life in the church. And so you see this beautiful relationship that the church has with one another in which they're pouring into one another. Uh, they are known and they are knowing other people for the good of one another and for the glory of God. And then chapter three is all about how the Christian lives in the world. And so a small book with comprehensive application here for us. Now, with all that being said, uh, let's look at Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, 
To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, this introduction is one of the longest introductions that Paul gives in any one of his letters, and that's significant. He gives himself two titles right out of the gate. He says, I'm Paul, I'm a servant of God, and I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he is revealing both his goal in life, that he would be a servant of God, and also the source of his authority. Now, think about it. He says that he is an apostle. Well, how do you become an apostle? Right? You're not just like living in first century you know, Palestine and there's a career fair, and it's like, would you like to travel? Uh, would you like to be an author but not have to come up with your own material? Like, maybe you would be a great apostle. You know, like, that's not what is going on here. Whenever someone was, was to become an apostle, those original 12, they were called, they were chosen by Jesus. Peter at the Sea of Galilee, Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, these men were apostles given a unique authority in this moment of, of the new church's life. Now, now, we should recognize that the office of apostle, capital A apostle, no longer exists. Ephesians 2.20 tells us as much. It says that uh, the church was founded, was built upon the foundation of the apostles. Well, now what is our source of authority? It is the Word of God. And so we cling to the Word of God. And as we look at uh, these words from this apostle, what we will notice is there are seven fruits evident in these opening verses of the Christian life. The first one being that we are servants. How does Paul describe himself as a servant of God? He, you know, I mean, if you think about all the desirable titles in our, word, our world, maybe it's director, uh, mother, you know, teacher, doctor, I mean, whatever desirable title it might be. Think about the life of Paul the Apostle and how the title that he uses to describe himself is as servant of God. This title, servant of God, was also used of Moses, was used of David. I mean, think about who Paul was. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He, he says in Philippians 3, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? He was a Roman citizen. That was certainly something to be proud of. He was a man who had not only planted, uh, you know, dozens of churches, but those churches were still thriving. And yet, whenever he introduces himself, he says, I am a servant of God. He sees no higher title than being a servant of the one who saved him. Would that same truth be said of us? You see, we can say that we are servants of God only because God has first served us. Uh, right now, me and Matthew Terry were reading through the book of John each Monday, and we just read through John 13. And there's this beautiful story in which Christ kneels down to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. Think about how humbling that is, that the Son of God would place a towel around his waist, that he would kneel down, and that his divine hands would scrape off the filthy grime of the streets that was, was right in between their toes. I mean, that is, that is a, a thought that I, I wouldn't want to do that for anyone. And yet he humbles himself to serve. And in that moment, we recognize as, that that was just a foreshadowing of the cross, that the towel around his waist is, is, is small compared to the cross that he would bear upon his shoulder, uh, ultimately not just to cleanse the soles of their feet, but to purify the souls of every single person that would believe in him. 
What makes us want to give our entire life serving God? It is to look to the cross and see how Christ has served us. To see him resurrected in glory, reigning now to intercede. To continue to apply the forgiveness of sins that he purchased for us. That, that change of heart makes us not serve God out of obligation or out of guilt or out of reluctance. But because we have been redeemed and we long to serve the God who first served us. Now, now how would this change the way that you enter into each other sphere of life that you will be in this week? Maybe you're married. What does it look like to be a servant of God in your marriage to your spouse, to your husband or wife? I, I think it would probably change the way that you listen, the, the way that you, you pray for your spouse and understand the things that perhaps are making him or her anxious. What about being a parent? I think to be a servant of God as a parent is to display patience and to instruct your children in knowledge of the Lord. How would your speech change to your coworkers, to your roommates, to fellow classmates, as you think about serving God through the way that you serve one another with your words? What do you think the schedule, the typical weekly schedule of a servant of God looks like? How much time is, is given to the ministry of others? What does it look like to rest, to actually sleep in a way that honors God because you know that God is sovereign over the world while you are dreaming? Uh, what does it look like to reflect that you are a servant of God in all spheres of life? Uh, what do your monthly expenses look like? Is it obvious that, that you ultimately serve God and, and not the God of comfort or status in the way that you spend your money? You see, this is such an important point for us to kind of camp out on a, a little bit because you will ultimately serve what, whatever you think will meet your needs. And, and I think it, as I even reflected on that truth this week, it was, it was convicting. Because if, if you think that what you ultimately need to have joy, to be fulfilled in life is uh, significance, then you will serve the approval of other people. You will serve their opinions of you. If you think that what you ultimately need is comfort, if that's what you desire, then you will serve stuff. You'll finally, you'll, you'll constantly see yourself kind of scrolling through Amazon and thinking, you know, what, do I don't, what don't I have that I could have here in, in just two days or so? If you desire pleasure, then you will serve your unchecked desires. If you desire God, then ultimately you will serve God. And, and here's the reality. Romans 6, Paul writes that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a servant of sin, but you are now a slave to righteousness. And here's this beautiful paradox of the Christian life, that you have been set free to serve God, that you are now free to do the very thing that you were designed to do that would both be for your good and for God's glory. And what is that? To serve him with everything you have. Well, how did that look for Paul? It meant that he was a missionary to the world around him. And so are you. The second quality is that we are missionaries. That word that is used for apostle, the root is apostolos, which means sent one. Now, like I said before, the office of apostle is no longer in existence. And yet the great commission to go and share this gospel message, it belongs to every single Christian which means we're constantly asking the question, who is close to me 
but far from God, and how can I bridge the gap? Now, here's the reality. Uh, there is a mission field in the world around you, and yet there is a person that you must preach the gospel to every single day, first and foremost, and that's you. You need to be reminded that you do not relate to God on your personal performance, but that you relate, you relate to God on the basis of what Christ has already done for you. And if you have now received that grace, your heart is filled with awe and praise, and you're able to take that message out to other people who need it, to those around you. It's amazing that we even get to be a part of this. I mean, think about the life of Saul, that he would say, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of all the apostles. And yet, what has God done, as we read in 2 Corinthians 3, that he has placed this treasure of the gospel, of immeasurable worth, in jars of clay. And we are the jars of clay that carry this beautiful message to the world around us. And so that we see that he was a servant of God because God first served him. That he was now one who was sent. Well, where is that modeled? Well, we know that God loved the world by sending his only son. Christ is the ultimate missionary who left his context of heaven to take on flesh, to condescend to us that we might have life in his name. And so as Christ was sent to us, now we are sent to others. Now, as I said before, this is Paul's longest introduction. And that's odd if you think that this letter is just intended for Titus. I mean, they know each other really well. We kind of looked at the history of this two weeks ago. Now, imagine I was writing a, a letter to my wife, Abby, and it started out, you know, Dear Abby, uh, this is from Terry Lee, your husband, the father of your children, the pastor of the Oaks Church. You'd be like, all right, like, I, I don't know what this is about. Like, you know, uh, well, so what is Paul doing? We wonder, okay, what's with the long intro here? But this, this reveals something that will be made known as we continue through the book of Titus, that this letter was intended to circulate through, you know, all of the churches that were in Crete. Paul is not just kind of giving, you know, pragmatic principles and saying like, hey man, this is my advice. Um, if it works, great. If it doesn't, you know what, chunk it, no big deal. Uh, no, he is saying this is what God has designed for the church to be like. And, and so for that reason, it would go to all these different churches that Paul and Titus planted around Crete. There could have been up to a dozen at this time, kind of all along the coast. It also means that it applies to us. And, and so we come under this letter knowing that this is the inerrant and inspired word of God to be applied to our life. Now, Paul gives the overview of this entire letter right here in verse 1. Why is he writing? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. As I said before, this letter is all about the relationship between belief and behavior. Uh, to use theological terms, orthodoxy, what you believe, and orthopraxy, how you live in light of that belief, right doctrine and righteousness. And here, this comprehensive view of the Christian life is laid out because he says that it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's something that takes place in your heart whenever you recognize, I am a sinner in need of saving. And the moment that you place your faith in Christ, your heart is regenerated. 
it's, it's transformed. That heart of stone is removed and that heart of flesh that now beats for God is placed within your chest. But, but how does that happen? Well, you see, there's also this, this connection to knowledge of the truth, that there is truth to be heard and to be received and then to be affirmed and then believed. So it's not just kind of like a matter of like, oh, you know, like I heard this, I was cut to the heart and I'm just giving my giving my life to Christ, and I'm just going to kind of live how I think is best. No. There's a knowledge of the truth that is integral to your walk with Christ. And then, and then what happens? Well, it accords with godliness. It, it changes the way that you live. You can see it in the way that you speak to others, in the way that you use your free time, in the, in the sins that you desire to forsake, and the obedience that you now long to walk in. We've talked about this comprehensive view of the Christian life quite a bit here at at the Oaks. It is one of both heart and head and hands, right? It's faith that transforms our affections and desires. It It is a matter of the head because what do we often say? The heart can't love what the head doesn't know. And then it's seen in your hands, right? It accords with godliness. And what does this ultimately mean? It means that we are disciples. We see that Paul is just laying out here what it means to be disciples. What is the Great Commission? It isn't, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I want you to go to all nations and and make decisions. That people would just, you know, say, okay, you know what, I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm going to pray this prayer so that whenever I die, I don't go to hell. And now I'm just going to kind of get on with my life. Like nothing else really matters. No, the Great Commission is go and make disciples, baptizing them. That's an action. You're saying, I'm submitting to Christ. I'm dead to my sin, and I'm now alive in Christ. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. As I become a follower of Jesus, that means that I am following wherever he is leading. That it is a matter of the heart, the head, and the hands. The that we are called to be disciples. And it is an all-of-life commitment that takes all of life to learn, uh, that we are justified in the moment that we place our faith in Christ and that we are daily sanctified as he continues this work in us. Now, here's the interesting thing. I think that many of us, while we believe that these are equally important components of the Christian life, I think that each of us have one that we probably lean a little bit more toward. Where you're, where you're someone who, who might really be like, you know, it, it matters what you do. So you're someone who, you know, hey, you're the first one to sign up for work day, and I appreciate that. We need those people, right? It's a lot of work, so thank you for doing that. But, but you're kind of like, hey, let's just get stuff done. Let's go share the gospel. Let's go, and, and that's a good thing. But if you're not daily warming your heart by, by the fire of God's word, then you're going to grow exhausted because what will happen is something will go wrong in your life and you're going to say, Lord, look at all this stuff I did for you. You owe me. I'm wearing myself out here. Why are you not giving me the results I desire? But if you're, if you're daily coming before the promises of God and you're seeing the way that you've been served by Christ whenever you were dead in your sin, you're saying, oh, I would live my entire life and have a calling like Isaiah where literally no one ever responds and it would be worth it. Because I'm not doing this for results. The works of my hands are ultimately to give glory to God. Maybe some other people, you prioritize the head, right? And so you're like, you know what? I, 
I want to dot all the I's and cross all the T's of my theology, and that's a good thing. But could it be that sometimes you get so distracted by debates over what spiritual gifts have continued or discontinued that you forget that you have actually been given spiritual gifts to use in the church today? That you become so consumed over matters of theology and, and, and debate on things that are second or third tier issues that you miss that God has given you gifts and that there are truths to uphold and believe that are first tier issues. Discipleship is a matter of not just trying to be right all the time, but being righteous and walking with Christ now, let's imagine, uh, you know, just to kind of show the interconnection with this, uh, imagine that Abby, you know, came to me this afternoon, and, and she said, um, one of the things that I would really love for Mother's Day is that you would plant rose bushes in, in our yard. And uh, I was like, you know, I could do that, um, or I could just make it look like I've planted rose bushes in our yard. And so I, I go over to Kroger, and I'm, you know, quick thinking, and I'm like, I'll just buy a few dozen roses and a pack of zip ties. We've already got hedges on you know, the, the side yard here. So what I'll do is I'll spend the afternoon kind of carefully cutting these roses, zip tying them to uh, the bushes that already exist. And for you know, a day, maybe even a week, if I'm lucky, with a little bit of rain, it will look like we have rose bushes in our side yard. And as you drove by, as you came over to our house for missional community group, you might even believe that there are actual rose bushes there. But what is going to eventually happen over time? They're going to wilt. They're going to fade. They're going to fall off. Why? Because the fruit, which is the rose, is not connected to any kind of root that is supplying life. There's an interconnection here. If your heart truly belongs to Christ, you're going to yield the fruit of walking with Christ. But if your Christianity is just the equivalent of zip-tying roses to your life to try to impress other people or to deal with the guilt and shame that you feel or, or to try to somehow measure up to God's holy standards, it's going to wilt. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be tired. You're going to find that it is immeasurably difficult. And so my invitation to you is to not just zip-tie behaviors to your life, but to believe in the grace of God made known through Christ. Which leads me to my next point, that we are chosen to trust in Christ. We are chosen to trust in Christ. It's interesting right here, we're still in verse one. I told you it was rich, right? That Paul says that his ministry is one for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the faith of God's elect. Now this is interesting, right? Because I think there are people who would say, oh, well, here, I mean, Paul's ministry was all about people placing their faith in Christ. It's all about human responsibility. They hear the gospel, but they must choose to place their faith in Christ. Like, it's a done deal. Well, then other people would say, well, but it's, I mean, but this clearly is teaching that God has elected some. That this is completely God's sovereignty. That before the foundations of the earth, he predestined some that would believe. It's right here that that, yeah, it's, it's faith, but it's the faith of God's elect. And I think here we find that both of these things are simultaneously true, that humans are responsible for placing their faith in Christ, that the, the moment of faith is the moment that a person hears the gospel, 
that the weight of their sin bears upon their hearts, that they repent of their sin and turn to Christ. That is the moment of faith that saves. And yet at the same time, it is the faith of God's elect that God in His sovereign mercy has graciously chose those who would believe in Him, those who would express saving faith in Him. Now, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so here, while it, it may appear like these are two uh, opposing truths in some way, we, we come to this text and recognize that God is greater than we are, that His ways are higher than our ways. But here's how Paul applied this text. We see what he wrote in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. He says, Any, anyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, but only those that, God, that are part of God's elect will place their faith in Christ. Now, this doesn't make him say, okay, well, you know, it's not up to me. God's going to save whoever we want, so it doesn't even matter if I, if I share the gospel. Now, what does he say? He says, I endure everything so that God's elect would obtain the salvation that is theirs. He doesn't just say, oh, well, this is God's deal, so I'm just not going to worry about it. He also doesn't say, man, I've got to be really persuasive because it all depends on, you know, their, their choosing, their ability to, you know, fully comprehend this and then place their faith in Christ. No, he's, he's saying, I, I'm giving my life for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And this has implications for us. Maybe you're sitting here and you're wondering, well, I mean, is, is this me? Am I a part of God's elect? Well, let me ask you the question. Do you see your need for Christ? Do you see your sin as something that ultimately is not just a bad habit, but an offense against God? Well, if so, then perhaps God is giving you the gift of faith right now so that you could call upon Him. That, may that be evidence that you are indeed one who is in Christ. Do you see Christ as your only hope? How does this affect the way that you view others? What well, doesn't it just cause us to throw up our hands and say, well, I don't know who God's elect is, so I'm just not really, you know, going to spend my time sharing? No, it, it's for us to say, I'm going to give my life sharing the gospel with my children and my neighbors and my coworkers and my family because I know that only God can save and my only responsibility is to share. Don't take election into your own hands and say, well, that person's too hard-hearted. They would never want to read the Bible with me. Don't take election into your own hands and say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to share with them. I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're kind of always short with me at work, or I don't really know how God could redeem this situation. No, if Paul, the persecutor of the church, and Titus, the former pagan worshiper, can become pastors, then the gospel can change the heart of anyone. So what does that mean for us? It means that we take great joy and humility in the fact that we are chosen to trust in Christ. I mean, whenever Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he's just, he shows just how helpless we are to call upon the name of the Lord without his intervening. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, Paul wrote, wrote to the church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's passive. Made us alive together with Christ. How did you do it? By grace, you have been saved 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Who can make the dead live? Only God can make the spiritually dead come to life. As we've been, you know, kind of cleaning out the the new building and, you know, looking through um, old artifacts, we have come across all kinds of stuff. Uh, Many of you have noticed the plaque in the lobby that says, um, you know, members buried in the churchyard. And there is one name on there, and we don't know where he is or if he's, if this is the churchyard, like we're just not sure. Um, Here's what we do know. I am not expecting uh, Thomas to waltz in for church one morning whenever, you know, we're there. Why? Because uh, a, a dead person can't just respond, can't change, can't walk into anywhere because they're dead. Well, Paul here is using the imagery of being spiritually dead. He's saying, who, who makes you live? God makes you live. This is not a matter of debate or a matter of, you know, arguing sides. Even, even, if you, even if you kind of squirm a little bit as we talk about this and you're saying, you know, I'm not exactly where Terry Lee is, that's, that's okay. Titus 3.10 will literally say, uh, avoid those who cause controversies in the church. That's not my desire here. My desire is to exalt a God who is gracious and merciful, that whenever I know I was dead in my sin, running headlong to hell, God pursued me. And if you're a Christian, praise God, that's your story too. We are those who praise God because he not only saves us, but keeps us. And that gives us the hope of eternal life. That's what Paul says in verse two. We have the hope of eternal life. That that whenever we breathe our last on earth, we will be in the presence of Christ. And that eternal life begins now in the fact that Christ dwells within us through the Holy Spirit, that we are knit together to Christ We have eternal life now because eternal life is ultimately found in the presence of God. And this also gives us hope for the future. How can we know that? Because God never lies. That's what verse two says. God never lies. Everything about God's character is wrapped up in this truth because we know that God is omniscient. He's all knowing. So he's not going to learn something tomorrow that would cause him to change the reality of this promise. We know that God is immutable. He is never changing. So there is no expiration date on his promises. His promises are as sure as tomorrow's sunrise, more so because of who he is. God is omnipotent, which means he is all powerful, which means there will never be a time that God says, oh, I wish I could do that, but I just can't do it. No, your salvation is secure because it has been granted to you by God. And only an eternal God could give you eternal life. I love this whenever you look at the context of Crete, because Crete was known as being the birthplace for the mythological god Zeus. It's, I, I love the fact that it's almost like Paul is kind of giving like a, you know, as, he, as he's talking about the eternal life that God gives, he's saying the, the true eternal God had a plan for those who lived on this island before your false God was even in existence. He says that God revealed this at the proper time. The Greek word that's used for time there is chronos. And if you know Greek mythology, you know that Zeus was famous for going to war against chronos. Now, I don't know if Paul meant to do that or not, but you can't help but just kind of see that there is at least some similarity there. That, oh, your your puny God 
has to go to war with time and hope he wins, whereas our God rules over it, outside of it. And what does he use his great powerful power for? He uses it for redeeming sinners like us so that we would have this hope of life promised before the ages began. And what do we read in verse three? At the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted. Fifth, we are entrusted with God's word. We are entrusted with God's word. This is instructive for us. How does God make this beautiful, eternal plan known? Through the preaching and teaching of his word. Surely this shapes what we do on Sundays when we gather, that the word of God would be you know, the, the heart of everything we do, that it's what's taught in equip classes and in missional community groups, but this is also instructive for your life throughout the week. If you, want to, if you want to be someone who is full of the hope of eternal life, that is living a life that glorifies God because it accords to godliness, the only hope for you being able to do that is to be daily in the word of God. Maybe that means grabbing the reading plan. If, if you don't want to do the whole thing, maybe just going through the New Testament portions. Maybe it's pulling up the verse of the day on the YouVersion app each day, but here's what I know, that the Word of God applied by the Holy Spirit of God will change you. And we've been entrusted with this Word. Whenever Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, in chapter 1, he says that the gospel preached by me is not man's gospel. So what do we preach to other people? We don't say, oh, I'm not going to touch the doctrine of hell because it might offend someone, or I don't really want to lead in by telling somebody that they are a sinner in need of saving. Now, certainly, we want to be aware of how some of those truths can come across, but it doesn't mean that we hold them back or water down the gospel because the power is the gospel. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 17. I mean, whenever he wants to talk about the power of God, he doesn't point to exploding volcanoes or shooting stars. He points to the gospel that causes dead people to live. And so we don't back down from it. No, we've been entrusted with it. And, and this is beautiful. As Tim Chester says, it's almost, you know, whenever you speak the gospel out loud, it's almost like on a, on a cold day, whenever you speak and you can see uh, your words as you're exhaling form into, you know, this, this fog, this mist that you can behold with, with your eyes. Because the moment you speak the gospel, eternity enters history. This eternal promise becomes realized for someone that you get to share this hope. Sixth, we are members of a faith family. Moving a little quicker here toward the end. The way that Paul speaks to Titus, he says that you are my true child, verse 4, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, it's amazing that, that he says this because Paul, we know, was a Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Titus, born to Gentile parents, grew up not knowing the ways of God and, and Jewish religion. And yet he calls him his true son in the faith because they have this common faith that has been given to them by communion with God. Now, think about that. Some of you in here, maybe you don't have a good relationship with your parents. And what a gift it is that you get to have spiritual mothers and fathers in your life that you can ask to. You can ask for parenting advice that can come alongside you. You can sit around their table. Some of you, you, you have maybe strained relationships with your children. What a joy it is that 
You can have many spiritual sons and daughters through this family that has, that has, is centered around this common faith in Christ. And the church is a place that is marked by uncommon unity because we all share a common faith. Seventh, we are recipients of God's grace and peace. This is what Paul points to here at the very end as he ends this letter. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, it's interesting because in Rome, one of the common uh, greetings was karain, which just kind of means greetings. And here, Paul tweaks it slightly to say charis, grace be with you, mercy be with you. And then, and then the word uh, that is used here, peace, erine, uh, is similar to the word shalom, which Jews would have used to address one another, which kind of means the peace of God, right? It's more than just kind of this inner sense of calm. It's like, uh, you know, a restored relationship with God. And so here, every time Paul uses this grace and peace language, he is bringing in both Gentile and Jew to say this is a common faith that we have. And here's the sequence. When you have grace, the grace of God, you receive peace with God. He says that Christ is our Savior. In verse 3, he says God is our Savior. Verse 4, he says Christ is our Savior. Of the 12 times the word Savior is used in the New Testament, six of them are found right here in the small book of Titus. And what he is saying is the Trinitarian nature of God is a God who saves. And Titus would say God is our Savior. Paul would say God is our Savior. Can you say God is our Savior? Maybe today would be the day that you are reminded of that great and glorious truth. Maybe today would be the day that you make that truth your own by saying, I am one who needs to be saved. I've been zip-tying fruit to my life for a long time, and I am exhausted. And today is the day that I cry out as a sinner in need of grace, and I recognize that the death of Christ was in my place, that his resurrection gives me life. Would that be you? Here's how I want you to use the time that that we have for reflection in the Lord's Supper. I want you to briefly, if you've been taking notes or maybe just can call some of these things to mind, I want you to consider the seven fruits or seven qualities that uh, we've discussed during this time. Uh, that there would be some that you just thank God for. It's, it's a heart of gratitude. Uh, you, you cement your contentment in Christ because of these things. For some of these, would you just humbly say, God, would you help me to grow in this? Lord, I desire this, but I recognize that there's still a gap between uh, where I want to be and where I am. Would you help me grow? For some of you, there might be other faces and names that come to mind. Maybe you're thinking, as a missionary, this is someone I want to share the gospel with. Uh, for others of you, you think about what it means to be a faith family, and you could be grieving right now for a fellow brother or sister. You could be hurting. You could be burdened for someone. Uh, there could be, you know, something going on in someone's life, and you just kind of want to lift them up during this time. Would you? Would you take them to the Lord as we recognize that the only way for us to bear fruit is to be rooted in Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches, and we will bear fruit in him. Let's pray.